Hello, I'm Llewellyn Kane, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. In April 2018, Linda Gasparello co-hosted this program and its producer, and I traveled to Charleston, South Carolina, to film a series at the American College of the Building Arts. It was one of the most extraordinary programs we have made because the college is extraordinary. It specializes in a full academic liberal arts curriculum plus one of some intriguing trades. And it is the trades that make it unusual, distinctive, and give the students a great leg up in their professions, in their careers. Joining me today are Wade Razzi, Chief Academic Officer and Professor of English at the American College of the Building Arts in Charleston, South Carolina, and Linda Gasparella, the program's producer and co-host. In your words, tell us about the college. So the college was founded in, uh, in response to a kind of local tragedy in the form of Hurricane Hugo, when Charleston, ahead of the curve of uh, the general national trend realized that there were not enough trained skilled artisans to repair the damage from the hurricane. So what the college did was it started a program to train people in these trades, but it didn't lead to anything. Uh, there was no certificate or degree, and they decided a few years later in 2004 to make it into a full-fledged college, which meant under the rules of the South Carolina um, Commission on Higher Education that we had to have uh, the components of a liberal arts curriculum. So what they did, the, the people who put the program together, is they combined the two, which in the history of education have been for no good reason completely separate up, up until this point. So our students take math, science, history, English, um, and foreign language the way they would at any other college, but they major in things like timber framing, um, architectural carpentry, plaster stone, and um, blacksmithing. So when they leave, they've gotten a combined education, which is a trade education and a liberal arts education. And uh, we are, as far as we know, the only college in the United States that does this and, and really one of only a handful of programs in the entire world that have this approach. They're really, um, even in places like France and Germany that have a well-developed trade training system, they generally don't have the liberal arts component or don't have it to the, the degree that we do. So we are a unique institution. What struck Linda and myself particularly was the sense of I was lost and now I am found among right. the students, <laughs> uh, which was quite common. For example, one young woman who was taking blacksmithing and working in a forge at, I think, 2,000 degrees, making exquisite ironwork, mm -hmm. uh, had, like many young people of both sexes, had too many jobs. And this particularly struck me because my father did blacksmithing work, and I know what's involved, and I did a little bit when I was a teenager without any, any skill, and I certainly did not wish to continue blacksmithing. Um, basically working in hot iron, very hot iron, but it did so move me to see so many people who had found a purpose because they were taking a liberal arts degree, but their enthusiasm was for the trade that they were right. learning. 
Uh, I think, can you give me some anecdotes that explain this passion of the students? Well, I think in general, the way that the American school system has been oriented for the last 30 or 40 years has been to push as many students as possible into liberal arts, traditional liberal arts programs. And uh, a lot of high schools have killed off the shop classes that they used to have. And so you have a lot of students that are going to school and nothing's really grabbing their interest. Um, and then when they sort of just go to college as a matter of course, nothing really grabs their interest there either. So we had a student um, who graduated probably the year or maybe two years after you were here, um, who had gone through a traditional uh, historic preservation program and realized at the end of four years that she had never picked up a tool. So she didn't really know how to do the practical side of preservation. So she came here and got a second degree with us. Um, we've had plenty of other students who had no idea that we even existed. And then the day they found out that we existed, we're filling out an application. Uh, we, uh, we, we saw an increase in applications after you came last time, but then we were also featured on PBS NewsHour and we were literally getting applications being filled out while that seven minute story was being aired because people finally saw that there was a place that they could go. Um, and so we've had a ton of students who've come through in the last few years who really didn't know what they wanted to do until they realized that this was an option. So uh, we have a junior stone carving student named Iris Howe, whose um, father heard about uh, this place from your broadcast, and she's, she's an amazing stone carver. Um, we're actually trying to work, uh, if, if COVID restrictions allow it, we're trying to get her to a cathedral in England uh, to do some work there. We have another stone carving student who uh, has been on hold for two years, but he's been accepted to the City and Guilds of London School, which is our first kind of air quotes graduate placement where we've had a student who's going to one of the European training centers. We've had, uh, I think it's a total of four students go to a workshop in France, um, uh, the Atelier Saint-Jacques, which is part of the, the Couberton my, my French is terrible, but Coubertin, I think is probably a closer pronunciation. Uh, that workshop, which only a handful of Americans have ever trained at. So we've had a lot of students who've come through and had amazing opportunities. And at the same time, like you said, we've had a lot of students who just finally found what they had been looking for. Um, we've got a good number of students who have done tours in the military and you know weren't really sure what they were gonna do when they got out. They heard about us, they came here. They're good with their hands. They like building things. Uh, we've had a lot of really successful veterans that have come through. And we've had students who've got to go on and do pretty amazing jobs once they've left. Um, we have one student now, Brad Collins, who was hired by Mount Vernon. And he's one of their restoration carpenters. And he's going to be working with two more of our students this summer who are going up as interns on restoring one of the faces of George Washington's Mount Vernon, which is one of the most significant private properties in the country. So, you know, what they can do once they leave here is pretty amazing too. Linda? Wade, uh, could you tell me whether in the distribution of students that you've had coming into the school since we were there in April of 2018, 
whether that distribution reflects um, some of the ravages of climate change. For instance, do you have students in, coming from Louisiana who are interested in historic restoration because they saw areas of Louisiana devastated by storms and hurricanes? Um, I don't know that we've got anybody directly uh, from something like that. We have had students at this point I think Hawaii might be the only place we've never had a student from. And we are hopefully next year going to have our first international student who's coming from Morocco. Um, the student who I mentioned who had done the degree in historic preservation, she wants to go back to uh, Wisconsin and uh, restore barns up there. That was the whole reason that she got into restoration. Um, we, you know, we, we've had conversations. I mean, the whole school was born out of the damage done by a hurricane. And so that is one of the things that hopefully we're contributing to helping out. Uh, but our student population's fairly small for, for a college. We've got this year about 120 students. So I don't know that we've really had much of an impact on that yet. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Wade. I think you were the first person who approached me before we went down to South Carolina and draw my drew my attention uh, to the college. What is your own background and how did you get that? Uh, so I started off as uh, professionally as a high school teacher. I was an English and history teacher in public schools in New Jersey. And I did that for about four years. Uh, it wasn't as fulfilling as I hoped it would be. And I made the decision that I wanted to go to graduate school. So I did a master's degree in English at University of Maryland, and then I did a, a PhD at Oxford University in English. Uh, at Oxford, they call a PhD a DPhil. So I did a DPhil uh, in English. And then um, right about when I finished that was when the uh, economy kind of collapsed from the Great Recession. And there weren't a lot of tenure track jobs going around at that point. Uh, I was living in South Carolina. I heard about the college. And I was intrigued by it because it is such a different mission and it, it attracts a different kind of student. And I applied and it was sort of one of those things where at the time they didn't have a position that really made sense for me. And they said that they would keep my resume on file. And I thought, okay, well, I'm probably never gonna hear from them again. And then about a year and a half later, they contacted me and said, hey, we have a position we'd like to talk to you about. And I assumed, given my background, that that was going to be a position teaching English. But I had done some administrative work in some of the schools that I worked at. I had been um, responsible for getting one of the schools that I worked at accredited. And that's what they were kind of looking for at the time. So I came down to do the interview. And as they were interviewing me, I realized that this was something more than just being a, uh, an English professor. So they said that they were looking for someone who could teach English because that was one of the needs they had at the time, but they were looking for somebody to be the chief academic officer. Um, so after a couple of interviews, I was offered that position and, and came on board, <clears throat> which I think was 2017. And uh, it, it intrigued me because, you know, like I said, it, it is a different kind of college. And I think that the United States has played this game for a long time where we don't really want to admit that we're doing professional training and we want to sort of adhere to the idea of a liberal arts education, but we're not doing either of those things very well. And it became clear to me that, that this college was. 
that the dedication to both components was such a key part of what this place was because it is the liberal arts that help promote critical and analytical thinking. And the idea that we've had for too long on the trade side of things is that, you know, people who are carpenters don't need that kind of education, which just isn't correct. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of in terms of the mission of the college is that nearly all of our students are gainfully employed after they leave here. Uh, we have to maintain employment rates at 70% in the field for us to stay accredited. And we have to have that verified by a third party um, agency every time we go through reaccreditation. And on our last uh, accreditation cycle, we had 98% of our students employed in the field, in a field for which we trained them. And I think the uh, it was one student, you know, remember you're, you're dealing with a, a pretty small college. The one student who wasn't employed was on maternity leave, but pretty much all of our students are graduating and getting jobs doing what we trained them to do. And I don't think many other colleges can do that. I don't think even Harvard can do that. So to me, it's, it's the fact that this college actually fulfills its mission and doesn't just do lip service to it. That was an important component for me. One thing that truly gladdened us, uh, Wade, was when we learned from students how much they enjoyed literature. Uh, right. In other words, your class. For many Thanks. students, it was the first time they had been exposed to such a range of literature. And the fact is that literature can really inform what they're doing in the trade. Right. Because if you look at things like imagination, which you see in literature, or you see character development, or you see space, all of these things really, uh, you know, really work together when you're learning a trade. So the idea that there are all of those, you know, things that can inform each other really does make that special. But I'm really curious, how do you recruit such superb professors? And what is the... <laughs> What's the challenge there? Oh boy, yeah, that's, <laughs> that is really one of the big challenges. Uh, there, there aren't many people who can do the, uh, the things that we teach. And, uh, and fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, <clears throat> the people that can do it at a very high level tend to command the kind of salaries that are difficult to match for a small college like us. Um, we have been very lucky that we have found people who have that real dedication that all great teachers have of wanting to pass their body of knowledge on to the next generation. And so we have benefited greatly from that. Most of our professors in the trade areas are um, European or, or European trained. So we have two timber framing professors <clears throat> who both completed a program in France called the Compagnon du Devoir which is a 10 year training program. Uh, you start when you're about 16, it's free. And 90% of the people who begin the program don't complete it, it's that rigorous. And so we have two of those graduates. We have a, a German master carpenter who actually is a master carpenter. He has that, that certification. Um, we have an English trained blacksmith uh, who is a world champion. They have a competition every year in Stia, Italy. And Matt has two medals from that. Uh, we have a stone carving professor who's an American, um, but he was trained by stonemasons and carvers 
from Liverpool who had just completed Liverpool Cathedral and they were brought over a group of them <clears throat> in the late 1970s um, to train carvers uh, who were working on trying to complete uh, the uh, Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York. So Joseph Kincannon, who, like I said, is American, he's from, from New England. Um, he was trained by, by English Masons. So most of our faculty are, are European on the trade side. And then on the, uh, on the academic side, I think a lot of people respond to this place in the same way that I did, which is that they really see that the students are dedicated and really want to learn and are here for a particular reason. Um, you know, I don't think anyone just sort of says one day, oh, I'm going to go to college to be a blacksmith. I think that there's a real dedication and passion there. And we have, we have professors who teach here and teach at another local college. And we hear time and time again how much they like teaching our students better because that level of interest is there. Um, it is one of the hardest parts of my job when someone leaves and I have to replace them because very often I, I don't know where I'm getting somebody um, and I have to start calling around to the people that I know and asking, hey, do you know a stone carver? Hey, we really need a plaster guy. Uh, one of the funniest stories, um, I was teaching one day and I came out of my class and our, our former uh, director of admissions said to me, um, some guy came in for a tour. He was a plasterer and she had toured him around the building. And I looked at her and I said, you let him leave? Like, why would you do that? We need a plaster professor. I've been looking for a qualified plaster professor for over a year. Um, we actually had to beg one of our alumni to come in and teach for a year uh, because we had a gap and I, I couldn't find a qualified person. And Steve Kester, who's our plaster professor, just was here in Charleston visiting the city, heard about the school, came for a tour. And, uh, you know, I got his contact information and, and contacted him immediately. And we started talking about him coming to teach here, sent me his portfolio. You know, I showed it to uh, a, a bunch of people. We were all blown away by the work he had done. And we were able to, to get him in, thank God. Well, I've got a little story I'd like to build on what Linda said a moment ago. We were interviewing a young African-American who had been in the Marine Corps and we were taking framing carpentry. And mm -hmm. I asked him what he liked about the school. And he said, literature, your, <laughs> your, your courses. He was in love with Dickens and he had never been exposed in his public right. school education to Dickens, and this was the thrill for him. So it's not just that the trades attract the right. intelligentsia, it's the trades are attracted to the intelligentsia or the intelligentsia part of the curriculum. I think one of the things that, that we do and that I've tried to do with my English class is to think of ways of making it relevant. I think we have that advantage over a traditional college or university where you have a wide range of majors. You can't cater what you're doing to one or another. My, my niece um, went to college for uh, a degree in physical therapy and she had to take physics. And I don't think she had the foggiest idea why she had to take a physics class. And I know that the physics professor had no idea that he was teaching somebody who was in a physical therapy program. Um, and so we all are able to kind of tailor our curriculum, knowing what our students are concentrating on. So rather than a, a kind of, you know, greatest hits of Western literature class, what I try to do is I try to pick 
pieces of literature that are representative of the different um, literary movements, which are overall part of larger artistic movements, so that our students can see that when you're studying the Romantics, that the contemporary architecture and, and other elements that they're learning about, it all fits together. It's not just that writers were writing in isolation, but these were broad artistic movements that encompass literature and music and visual art and architecture, and they can see how all those pieces fit together. And I, you know, nobody else is going to bother to do that because, like I said, you're just teaching a kind of straight-ahead literature course. And I think that when you make those connections between the different disciplines, it helps them to understand things a lot better. Um, and you know, there there are some that are tailor-made for that. Postmodernism, which I have to say we're not big fans of around here, but postmodernism started off as an architectural movement and then spread into other areas. So when I teach it as a literary movement they sort of, oh, right, yeah, this all makes sense because we've seen those pictures of the crazy buildings that the postmodernists designed. Wade, you had mentioned uh, that the, uh, that one of the things that, that was interesting in the school was the fact that so many of the graduates weren't employed after they, right. they jobs after they left the school. But they also started their own businesses, which I find completely intriguing. Right. I wondered about the business courses. I mean, that's something that you do need to learn. And does the school offer those business courses or are there coordinate programs with nearby colleges and universities where the students can take them at those universities? So we have both an AAS, which is an Associate of Applied Science in the Building Arts and a BAS. Um, Bachelor of Applied Science. <clears throat> in the associate program, there's not a lot that they get on that. Um, fortunately, most of our students, sort of two-thirds, one-third, end up getting the, the bachelor's degree. And in the bachelor's program, they take a class on building construction and another class on construction management, an accounting class, and a leadership class. And the leadership class over the past couple of years has kind of um, become more of a professional practice class. So uh, when I got here, it was, it was kind of a class about leadership theory and our students through feedback, you know, cause we, we do course evaluations for every class, like every other college kind of said they, they wanted more practical um, ideas about leadership. So, you know, we do things in that class, like how to get a business license, how to form an LLC. Uh, we have, you um, uh, things on how to organize <clears throat> your supply chain, how to do um, uh, pricing, because some of our students, the blacksmiths are terrible at it. Uh, blacksmithing has never, it was explained to me by one of our former professors that in previous um, centuries, blacksmiths were, were paid by the piece, or in some cases they were paid by the pound. Um, and so they have no idea what something is worth. So we have to teach them that. Uh, so all of that's built into the leadership class. And we had a uh, accounting professor who came in and he said to, to us when we interviewed him, you know, we said, you're a CPA. How are you going to make this relevant for our students? And he's like, well, let me tell you about my brother. My brother's a plumber and I do his books and he's terrible at it. And so, we, you know, we knew this was the guy that we should hire. So uh, the idea is that, you know, none of our students are going to sit there and in the middle of accounting class and be like, oh, wait, this is what I want to do. I want to be a CPA. 
Um, but at least they're going to be able to run QuickBooks and they're going to be able to keep track of, you know, their costs and their revenue and things like that. So we, we tried to build that in. And um, we've also, uh, as part of that second year program, uh, uh, we have to teach a foreign language and we have been teaching Spanish for the last few years as our sole foreign language because it's become such an important part of anybody working in building construction in the United States. I mean, we were told by um, a, uh, a guy that owns a very large masonry company in California that he can't promote anybody if they don't speak Spanish because they have to be able to communicate with part of, part of the workforce. So we consider that to be part of the skills that are necessary to be in a managerial position. And that's one of the things that we have been really successful at uh, is not only getting students job, jobs, but we've seen our students advance when they go to work for larger companies, usually very quickly because they have that, they have a degree, first of all, but they also have that practical business knowledge and then they can actually do the trade itself. Wade, do you have um, people trying to switch their, their specialty? That's very difficult to do because of the way that our program is structured. Yes, we have had some students who've done it. Um, the big one, honestly, is iron because they come to Charleston in August and it's already about 100 degrees. And then they're standing in front of a forge, which is 2000 degrees. And they usually decide in the first couple of weeks that that's not for them. Um, this past year, uh, our blacksmithing professor brought a thermometer into the room and it was 130 degrees with all of the forges going because of all the ambient heat. So uh, one of the students after the first week decided that he wanted to be a stone carver instead of a blacksmith. And that worked out really well because it turned out that he had some latent talent in, in stone carving. Um, we have, we've had other students who have wanted to change after a year or two. That's much more complicated because all of our courses are sequential. Every one of our trade classes is a prerequisite for the next one because all of the knowledge that they gain, all the skills that they gain build on each other. So when they wanna change after a year or two, that usually means they end up spending more time here. You, you are an English professor. <clears throat> you have a doctorate in English, you've been to right. Oxford University. English is your thing. But if you were to do it again and learn a trade, which of the trades appeals to you? I, I kind of go back and forth. I have thought about that. Um, there's something neat about iron. Uh, there, you know, just the, the visual of it is so striking. Um, if, I, if, I, if I wanted to go for money, I would probably do plaster because plasters are in such huge need right now. Um, it's, it's almost a dying art. Um, and uh, timber framing which is a structural form of woodworking also kind of appeals to me. So I don't know, one of those three, not that, not that the others aren't interesting, but I don't, stone carving requires a certain kind of, of visual ability um, to see the sculpture within the stone that I don't think I have. That's our show for today. We will see you next week and uh, be careful, uh, or you may find you prefer working with your hands to working with your mind. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.